Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 36, He Always Was. My name is Tim, and I'm your host. This week, Steve is discussing the incarnation of Christ as the focal point of history. We will learn that Christ is the complete revelation of God's nature. Um, so tonight, as we're pursuing the mystery of Christ, this fourth week, we're coming to, to the heart of the mystery, which is uh, the Incarnation. So I see some of you, lots of you taking notes, so I'll give you some verses. We'll start with a couple of verses. One is, I just love this verse. I often quote it. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hmm. There we are. Radiance in part speaks of his essence, not fully, because even his radiance we couldn't perceive with, without his energies. But we see it there. Um, the exact expression of his nature. It's the energies of God in, in, in the sun. And then another great verse is 1 John 4, 2, and this is how you can know God's spirit. Every spirit who confesses Jesus Christ has come to earth as a human is from God. So that seemed like two good opening verses. Throughout this series, we've been looking at the mystery of Christ. I've told you it's a term that the New Testament uses 28 times. Paul uses 21 times. Now we come to what I believe is, is the heart of that mystery. That doesn't mean we can't go deeper. I think we're going to go deeper with the cross, perhaps. Certainly we're going to get into the Trinity. But but the center of this mystery, I think, is the Incarnation. Irenaeus, who is a second century church father who I like very much, Irenaeus said this, The only true and steadfast teacher, capital T, the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Isn't that good? Man, that'll, you meditate on that. That'll preach. Um, another church father, St. Isaac, said this, The incarnation is the most blessed and joyful thing that could ever happen to the human race. Last year, as I taught through John's Gospel, we spent time on the prologue. And I need to go over a little bit of at least two verses in the prologue because um, the Apostle John uh, recognized the centrality of the Incarnation. And so he began his Gospel with this poetic description of the Incarnation. I've said to some of you before, St. Augustine called these the most sublime words ever penned. Uh, so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is verse 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John, with those two verses alone, although the whole prologue develops it, was declaring that Jesus is the full revelation of God. The full revelation. 
So let's just go back and look at those verses quickly, all right? So he opens with a clear declaration, John does. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I told you uh, last week that it was not accidental that John began with the phrase, in the beginning, just as the Old Testament begins the same. It's about the creation story of Genesis. Now uh, there's a new creation in Christ. He's saying so much in that, and, and I, I, I'd love to go on and on on it, but, we, but let me just say this. By saying in the beginning, he is not only saying that, that uh, Christ was there in the beginning, he is saying that all of creation is a reflection of Christ. Christ created everything. That's why he began with that. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. And some of your translations would even say Logos, L-O-G-O-S. And uh, the Logos uh, is, a, is a word, it's a Greek word, it's a word that, that was understood in both the Greek and Hebrew world. And, and yes, it can be translated as word, uh, but here we're stuck with a rich Greek language where a single word means many more concepts than we're used to in English. But it includes, um, it includes word, but it means the idea behind the word, the thought behind the spoken word. It includes the vision, the plan, and the wisdom that inspired the word. I encourage you to spend some time in Proverbs, um, Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, for those of you who read the Septuagint, um, I've been for the last several weeks on the wisdom of Solomon, now on the wisdom of Sirach, which are structured, uh, uh, structurally they're like the, the Proverbs, but they were written much later. Uh, but, but you will see that wisdom is about, the Logos rather, is about wisdom, okay? And remember, um, Paul said Christ is the wisdom of God. So, the Word is God the Creator, but now, with the Incarnation, that Word, without ceasing to be who, etern who He is, eternally is, that same Word has now become a creation. How's that for mind-boggling? He hasn't stopped being the Creator but he's now a creation. It was the Word, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was. The, the Word simply was. It's from the beginning. Um, and it talks, the Word was with God. We'll develop this in weeks to come on the Trinity, communion uh, within the Trinity. The Word was God. John is shouting, the Son of God was co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. That he has the same divinity as the Father. Um, it's really interesting because in the beginning was the Word. He's, he is the same. And then you have the actual climactic point of John's Gospel is not chapter 21. It's the end of chapter 20, which is probably where the original Gospel ended. When... Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The, the word, it, it's Jesus and Father together, okay? And then we get to verse 14, the really famous verse about the incarnation. 
And the Word became flesh and took up residence among us, literally tabernacled among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the heart, here is the beginning, and the end of not only John's Gospel, but history itself. This sums up everything. Um, God has physically entered human history, and this is known as the Incarnation. And he took up residence. He tabernacled. He put, one translation says, he put up his tent among us. And I talked last year about that referring to the, the call all the way through the New Testament the, that we're pilgrims. We're, we don't put our roots out and say, this is what I do, this is where I live, this is who I am. That New Covenant people are pilgrims. And they follow the cloud. That's part of what he's talking about with the tent. But also, he's referring here to the tabernacle of God, the Mosaic tabernacle, which then became David's tabernacle, which then became the temple. And John is telling us that the body of Jesus Christ is now the new locality of God's presence on earth. Jesus is the replacement of the ancient tabernacle and its fulfillment. I've taught you this before. Jesus, what one of the things that drove the religious people crazy, it's in the synoptics, it's in John, it's really strong in John. Uh, chapter 2, chapter 4, he's saying, I am the temple. I'm the new temple. And for the, the, the first century Jews, they believed that the temple was a holy place. It wasn't just a great building. It was that intersection point. We talked about that a few weeks ago, I think, that intersection point of heaven and earth. So John is talking all about that. So <clears throat> Jesus is the totally concrete embodiment of the nature of God. We're going to develop that a lot over the next few minutes. During the first four centuries, this mystery of him being fully God, fully man, carried such truth and tension that the church had to continually struggle to to try to articulate and defend it. I was telling my son Tim today, he was amazed. I said, you know, historians tell us that the issues around the incarnation, about him fully God, fully man, were a more de de uh, divisive, more explosive issue than the Reformation was 1,100 years later. Isn't that interesting? They had council after council and creed after creed Later on tonight, we're going we're gonna to speak out and declare one of those creeds. But it's because of this tension. What brought about every one of those creeds was this, how do we understand, how do we hold together the divinity and the humanity of Christ? The doctrine of the Incarnation expresses the mystery that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God. If anybody cares, the theological word is hypostasis. It's actually a really helpful word if you want to do a little... Google search, hypostasis, and uh, the union of God and man. And it's not, by the way, merely a moral union or a spiritual union. That's part of some of the offshoots that couldn't hold the tension together. It's not that. Um, it is a physical union of two natures, so as to make Christ one person. Folks, I wish this was clearer in our 21st century evangelical churches, but Christ did not set aside his divinity 
in order to come and dwell among us. That's right. He was 100% divine and 100% human, which is a lot of percentage points. It suddenly reminds me, I just, funny, I just thought of this. I, I read a, a middle school teacher, some of his best answers from his kids over the years, and in his music class, somebody, I don't know where my brain goes, Christina's not here to hold me in check. Um, <laughs> some, some kid wrote, uh, George Frederick Handel was a composer. He was one half German, one half Italian, and one half English. <laughs> Handel was a very large man. <laughs> anyway, I don't know where these things come from. 300 years of church gatherings led to the foundational creeds that we now have. The Nicene Creed, which, as I said, we'll together after the, after the podcast, we'll go through it. But it says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one being with the Father. So, my challenge is, uh, as I've been reading about the Incarnation for the last couple of years, it's like, it's like a well that you get down that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And I just was thinking about it in the car coming back from that appointment today. I thought, you know, I, I've drawn, just this past week, I've drawn from evangelical, mainline Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic theologians on, on the Incarnation. Because it is so broad and so deep. Um, so I want to try to give you some practical things tonight. Really, I hope to, in part, stir up a hunger and an interest so you can begin to pursue these things in a deeper way because I certainly am not capable of, of fully explaining this in 45 or 50 minutes. But maybe we can put a little bit of thirst there and you guys can go on your own journey. So let's look at some of the significance uh, of the Incarnation. Number one, and okay, just so we're clear, when I say incarnation, it is Christ coming, coming and entering the world, fully human, fully God. Everybody, we're all on the same page, what we mean by incarnation, yes? Okay, we talked about the pre-incarnate Christ last week, Christ in the Old Testament, and he was present, as I said, he's present all the way through the Old Testament. We talked about uh, Christophanies where he would appear. Hey Hector, we talked about um, we talked about types, but but now we come to the incarnation where he enters as a, fully as a human. Okay, I just want to make sure so that I'm using the word incarnation and we can track together. Incarnation reveals the Father. John stresses this truth throughout his gospel. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He says to Philip, famously, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This truth carries throughout all the New Testament, not just John's gospel. For example, um, Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. I love Colossians 2.9. Let me say that verse one more time. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. Hmm. Going back to John, 
at the end of the prologue, at the last verse of the prologue, John 118, no one has seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Okay, so the incarnation reveals the Father. The incarnation is both the act of redemption, redemption is salvation, is rescue, redemption in, in, uh, to the Jews went all the way back to sacrificial lamb, uh, scapegoat, etc. Uh, but also to the Romans, the word was very common, and it's what you, you paid a price to set a slave free. Okay? So that's just what the word meant. Um, so the incarnation is both the act of redemption and restoration, and at the same time, it is an act of love that expresses the Father's true nature. Let me give you a Richard Rohr quote, which I see did not come up to full print size, so we'll just do this. Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It didn't need changing. God has organically, inherently loved what God has created from the moment God created it. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. This sets everything on an utterly positive foundation. The incarnation is both the revelation of who the Father is and the radical redefinition of what He is like. How do I know that we haven't really got a hold of the, the incarnation in, in our Western Christianity? Because we have not, all too often, we have not uh, taught and, and, and opened up what the Father is really like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God did not become Christ-like at the Incarnation. If we believe that, we're headed down that whole pantheon we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where the Father is like the main deal, and then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that's not it. We'll, we'll go over that a little bit when we get to the Trinity. God did not become Christ-like. That's who He is. He has always been Christ-like. Long before Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1. <clears throat> Jesus came to earth. This is all under this first heading um, of the Incarnation Reveals the Father. It's kind of a long section. Uh, so, the incarnation is both the revelation of who the Father is and the radical redefinition of what He is like. Jesus came to earth to unveil who God is in heaven. Jesus came to earth to unveil to us who God is in heaven. How God came to earth the way, the manner in which he came to earth is a revelation of his true nature. Let's unwrap that a little bit. The, for a long, long time, there's been a distorted view, a distorted idea of what God is like. Um, first century Israel, they were looking for a warrior king. They were sure he was going to come and drive out the Romans. That they 
they looked for it, they wrote about it, they, they, that's who they were waiting for. They were waiting for Jesus to come in on a big steed, and we know he came in on this little colt. And uh, he came in the back door, didn't come in the front door. Israel's messianic expectation of Christ was... We understand it. It's very appealing. We want a powerful warrior king God. Yes, we do. Listen to so many of our songs about the Lion of Judah. And then where the Lion of Judah is spoken of in, in Revelation 5. And I turned, and what did I see? A lamb. But I understand it's very appealing. We live in a time where we want the church to be powerful. That's why there's this, to me, a terrible marriage of the church and the state. And that, you know, try to win favor and try, and that's, that's just been doing that for nearly 2,000 years. I understand that we want a powerful God. I want a powerful God whose movements I can, I can see and go, oh, God is in control. God is in control, which is easy to believe at 20 after 10 on a Sunday morning when 600 people are singing, God is in control. But God is a mystery. And God is not a warrior king. Because how Jesus came is who God is. Karl Barth, you guys know who he was? Foremost 20th century theologian. He said this, Modern Christianity tends to spell the name God as capital M-A-N. They want a Superman. The early church was so countercultural. You know, I just finished writing a lot about that with that, that new book. But why was it so countercultural? Because the incarnation was so different from what the world's standard and expectation was. And it stayed countercultural for 300 years until Constantine came along. And he said, I'm not going to let people persecute you anymore. You're not going to find it harder to get a job. You're not going to have your property confiscated. In fact, we're going to make it a, a positive, an advantage to be a Christian when it comes to all these things. And what happened? The church and the state went like this. And the church fell into the same place that, that much of the Old Testament, much of the first century Jews did. They're looking for our warrior king. Remember, uh, Constantine famously said he had a, a vision of a, of a cross. And so he had a cross painted on all the shields of his soldiers. So they could win because they had the favor of the warrior king. I'm going to leave that for you to think about how that has continued to trickle down through history and right to our day. The way the triune God, the king of the cosmos rules, is exactly like Jesus of Nazareth lived. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. How he came reveals God's true nature. I just repeated myself on purpose. Pay attention to how he came. And you know all the story. You know he came 
we've talked before, he came to, to a, a poor maiden. She was a teenager from the Dulas class, a servant class. That, that his whole life the whispers were that he was illegitimate. That, that he was a political refugee. All those things I've talked to you about before really, really matter. Because he's shouting out, this is what the triune God is like. This is what your father is like. And the way that he defeated the powers was not on a white steed. It was not through political and economic power. It was what we've taught you before, the kenosis, which is Philippians 2. That whole passage, 5 to 11 have this attitude in yourself is in Christ who was truly God but he did not try to remain equal with God the Father instead he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us Christ was humble he obeyed God and even died on a cross the humility of God his eternal nature is revealed in both the life and the death of Jesus who didn't fight back. We're going to talk all about the cross in a few weeks. But his life and his death, because of the incarnation, this is fully God, being fully God, never fought back. And he defeated the powers that way. Because Jesus lived... Um, oh, okay, here's another point as to why the incarnation matters. Because Jesus lived life in the fullest sense... In the Incarnation, He sanctified all human existence. This was part of that truth intention that, that led us into the creeds, because some said, well, humans are bad, human existence is bad, it's full of sin, so He couldn't have really been like us. But He, in being fully 100% human, He was sanctifying, making holy, blessing all of human existence. Think about it. Who would, what did Jesus do before the three and a half years of ministry? He was a common laborer. Frankly, the, the word is not carpenter, although we all grew up thinking it was. It's more of like a handyman. He did like stonemasonry and carpentry and stuff. He was a handyman. And by being a common laborer, he made all vocations sacred. One vocation is not more sacred than another. Do you know how often the young men and women, no, young men and women, that I find myself pastoring, we come to a point and they'll say to me, you know what, I think I'm called full-time ministry. And I try to find gentle ways to say you already are in full-time ministry. You already are. I frankly had so many, when I used to work in the business world and, you know, sell computer systems to colleges and school boards, I had so many more kind of natural, authentic opportunities to pray for people and, and, and share Christ. I mean, with, with, with software developers, with, with, with customers, with everybody. And then, you know, 30 some odd years ago, I stopped being bivocational and I became Pastor Steve. And yes, I, I get to see thousands by the grace of God, but it's different. They bring them to a meeting and I stand up and I talk. And that's so different. 
God blessed all vocations. Okay? This week's episode is brought to you by you. Yeah, no ad this week. I just wanted to take a moment and thank all of you who download the Impact Nations podcast each week. Our listenership is steadily growing, and we're so glad that you're a part of the Impact Nations family. I see that we now have a large number of listeners in Australia. Welcome, and thanks for hanging out with us. If I haven't met you before, my name is Tim. I'm the Director of Operations here at Impact Nations and the host of this here podcast. Last year, my son was wanting to know a little bit more about my job, so he asked me what I did all day while he was at school. I told him I work at Impact Nations and asked him if he knew what Impact Nations does. And he said, yeah, you help poor people in Africa get jobs and stuff. And I said, yeah, something like that. And he said, yeah, yeah, but dad, what do you do? And I said, oh, I mostly work on my computer and make phone calls. And then he looked at me sideways and he said, how does that help anybody? Ouch. So a big part of what we do here at Impact Nations is to equip you to go and change this world with the power of Jesus and his kingdom. So please, let's be doers of the word, not just hearers. Uh, this teaching that we receive here on the Impact Nations podcast is fabulous, but it's not worth much if we don't let it transform the way we interact with the world around us. Let's all be spurred on to go and bring this great big gospel to a world that is in desperate need of Jesus. If you're looking for some practice, come hang with me in India next month. Uh, There's still a few days left to register for the Journey of Compassion to India, and I would love it if you could come and join me. Uh, We can hang out and get to know each other. I'm going to be doing some teaching out of the Book of Acts. Uh, Randeep's going to be teaching out of Luke. And then we're all just going to go out and do the stuff together in villages out in rural India. Uh, You can learn more at impactnations.com slash India. And I just realized that I'm starting to sound like that ad that I promised I wouldn't give you. Anyway, if this podcast is challenging, you or inspiring you, we'd love to hear about it. If you want to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, that really helps. Or just shoot us an email at podcast at impactnations.com. We'd be welcoming your questions as well. Of course, we're going to be spending some time with a brand new guest in just a couple of weeks. For those who've been listening for a while, you know, we take in listeners' questions and then uh, discuss those with uh, one of our friends who's an author or a theologian or something. It'd be great to include some of your questions in that discussion. So again, just email them to podcast at impact nations.com and i think that's all i have to say so here's to you listeners we think you're awesome and enjoy the rest of the podcast the next thing number three the lost beauty of creation its original unsullied beauty was recovered through the incarnation Because the image of God in mankind had been marred, had been distorted since Genesis 3. But now, through the incarnation, God is fully man and fully God. And and the image of man is redeemed through the incarnation. The image of God is in us. Here's another reason. Since man could not come to God, God took the initiative and came to man. Therefore, the incarnation is God's greatest act of deliverance and rescue. The incarnation is about restoring all of us to community with the triune God. 
Gregory the Great, giving you lots of church fathers tonight. Gregory the Great said, In the mystery of the incarnation, God increases what is ours without diminishing what is his. Isn't that good? I think I'll say it one more time. In the mystery of the incarnation, God increases what is ours without diminishing what is his. If only if Christ is fully a man can we as men and women truly share in what he has done and who he is. Next point. Am I going too fast? A little bit? Okay, we'll slow down. Let's, let's just go back to Hi, good evening. Tonight we're going to talk about the Incarnation. Let's slow it down. You see that the Incarnation is His great act? It's not like just this neat event. It's certainly not about shepherds and, you know, the baby Jesus in a crib at Christmas and the cute grandkids. It's, it's not about that kind of event. It's about the, the, the reconciliation of everything, the completion of everything. It is the beginning of the ultimate end. And it, it is Him rescuing us. It's Him taking this massive, massive initiative. Think about it. You know, when I say this, we still think of Jesus. I know we do. We think of Jesus the carpenter. And yes, He was. But he was God. He was the second person of the Trinity. He didn't leave that behind in heaven. He didn't let that diminish one iota. The second person of the triune God came to earth. And no wonder Paul talks about him humbling himself, reducing. And it was out of rescue. It was out of reconciliation. It was about, it was about reversing the, the distortion that was in all creation. Okay, let's go back. Let's go forward, rather. The incarnation shows us what God is like, as I've said several times tonight. But the incarnation also shows us how to be human. Jesus showed us that the life the Father always intended for men and women, this life, His life points forward to the restoration of all things, of heaven and earth becoming one. The incarnation points back to the beginning of creation before it was distorted and points forward to the culmination of everything. And he shows us how to live. You know, we, there was that big thing 15 years ago. What would Jesus do? Bracelets? Yeah. Right? And that's not a bad thing. Um, I think it's better to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? But, um, but it, it, it's built on this idea. That Jesus, he didn't just model, he didn't say, here, this is how you do it, give it a try. 
He showed what happens when we live out of the life of the triune God. When we live out of the life of Christ in us. We begin the journey of learning how to be human. Um, I suddenly realized Jean Vanier, who I like very much, I did a series of lectures that were published as a book called Becoming Human. They're great. Jean Vanier, V-A-N-I-E-R, Becoming Human. I just, just thought of that, but you might want to look at it. Um, the incarnation is about God sharing and identifying with us at every level. And I want to develop that a little bit. It gets deep. It's not just, oh, I care about you. Jeff, I care about you. It's, I am entering into life in your full experience of life. Maybe I'm entering into everything that you ever have and ever will experience, and I'm not entering in as God is at a safe distance, but I'm coming in fully as man without leaving my godliness behind. Is it Paul who said godliness is a great mystery? I think it was. I think he said that in the pastoral epistles, didn't he? That's, this is a great mystery. Um, it's about him sharing in what we are and what we experience so that we can share in his life and who he is. He doesn't point the way. At one level, he doesn't even lead the way. He enters in to where we are step by step. He shares in our death on the cross so that we can share in his life. Christ is the meeting point of God and man. We're back to what I said about the temple earlier, the intersection of heaven and earth. He is the meeting point of God and man. He's now the temple. In the incarnation, Jesus as both God and man is the single point in all of the cosmos where divinity and humanity meet. In the entire universe, there's one meeting point. It's the incarnate Christ. Just think about that for a while and watch what happens to your brain. Jesus perfectly shares in our human experience deeply from the inside. He experiences. Uh, you know, the crucifixion, the classic, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me, where he's quoting uh, Psalm 22, and I've taught you about that. I think I wrote verse 24 or 25. The whole psalm leads to, I thought you'd forsaken me, but no, you were there the whole time. That's, that's the deep truth of that. But there's another truth. Guys, there's a difference between separation. This gets back to Jenny's question. There's a difference between separation and alienation. Separation, we are never, never separated from Christ. We're back to the, the essence of God. But alienation is the effect of the enemy, the powers of darkness, our own sin and failure. Alienation is the feeling of being alienated from God. We all know it in mild ways. We know, oh man, the heavens are as brass. I've been praying to him since the Lord for weeks. Alienation. Deep loneliness sometimes. Alienation. But it's not separation. We have never been separated from him. 
in part, we're going to get to the cross in a few weeks where he deals with alienation, but we've never been separated. So in the incarnation, he's this single point, and he perfectly shares in our experience from the inside. He shares the pain of the human experience. What's the classic? John 11. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, he loves that family. They're like his own family. That's, that's where he spends Sundays, gets great chicken dinners. That's his second home in Bethany. Look at how often Bethany shows up in the Gospels. And Lazarus dies. And we know that Jesus waits four days. And he knows. He says to his disciples, his buddies, he said, this is this isn't under death. You're going to see the glory of God. You're going to see what's happening. But when he's confronted with Mary and Martha, he just breaks down and weeps. Even though he knows what's going to happen. Because he enters in. I am trying to learn in my prayer life. I learned so slowly. But I am learning not to run from my sadness and my anxiety and all this stuff. That for years... I ran from in prayer. I just always put my best face forward. But Jesus meets us from the inside, in the middle of that. And it changes the way I pray. Jesus is our window into the triune God. You know, in... in, in, down the road we're going to talk about the Trinity, but it's our window into what goes on. The triune God. Jesus saves us by becoming what we are. He heals us by taking our broken humanity into himself. I have insisted for years when I preach, Jesus did not just take our sins to the cross, he took all our brokenness, all our pain, all our rejection, all our despair, all our self-loathing, all of that stuff. He took it to the cross because he takes it into himself and assumes it as his own by entering into our experience. If we get this, it changes the way we pray. There's a depth, there's an authenticity, there's a transparency that slowly begins to come. I was thinking about this verse when I was talking about how he enters into our experience. Hebrews 4.14, speaking about Jesus as the high priest. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He didn't get a pass. So why do I pray as if he did? Why do I pray as if I've got to have the victory? You guys still with me? Yeah. The fact that Christ becomes human underlines the value of all human life. I talked about how he, he sanctified everything, common labor, whatever work we do. But even bigger than that, that the incarnation, him becoming fully human, shouts out God's value for human life. All human life is made sacred because of the incarnation. 
Say all. All. Not the lives that look like us. Not the lives that agree with us. All. All. And human value comes from the image of God that we all bear. The implications of this truth of the of the Incarnation are huge. I was driving today. God was just speaking to me about justice in the poor the last two days. I put up a thing on Facebook this morning just because just, just, you go through seasons. And today, I, I was briefly at a stop and then a left turn and I looked and I couldn't even tell if it was a, a bag lady or a bag man. I just couldn't tell. She just in a heap there with stuff and and I thought, Lord, that life is so sacred. He or she is so sacred to you. Without having to clean up their act. All life is sacred. I would also say that the implication here is why we must stand for justice. Because the world says life is not sacred. We could be talking about the big issue right now, you know, the, the right to life that's, that's happening so much right now. But in the bigger sense, all that I tell you, the powers that be, which of course control the structures, I've taught you that before too, I promise you they will never say that all life is sacred. They will say productive lives, lives that can somehow be manipulated to strengthen the powers. Those are sacred. No, God says all lives are sacred. Okay. The last significance of the the Incarnation, until I tell you some more in a minute, (laughs) is the Incarnation is very significant to mission. Now, most people watching this know that my life is really given largely to mission with Impact Nation. Here's a quote from the Lausanne Conference, the second one that was in Manila. True mission is incarnational because it necessitates entering humbly into other people's worlds, identifying with their social reality, their sorrow, their suffering, and their struggles for justice against oppressive powers. This is why I am so persistent in inviting, encouraging, exhorting people to go to other nations in the name of Christ. Because not only are we doing what the heck we're here to do, But in the midst of it, we understand, we get a much greater understanding of his incarnation. Because he's incarnate. When I'm in a a bamboo hut in the Philippines, he's incarnate. When I was hugging a woman who was just filthy in a beggar's community, He's incarnate. That's partly why, Lisa, you've heard me say this, I need the poor a lot more than they need me. And I'm not just being cute. It's because of the incarnation. Okay, we're on the home stretch. 
So, just to try to wrap this up a little bit, and I'm actually reviewing some stuff from last year uh, on uh, when I was teaching on John, but Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. And when Christ, when this Word, this Logos, became flesh, God could never again be a distant deity. He could never be faceless. He's got a face and a name. Secondly, and I stress this often, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is not just one facet of God. God did not become Christ-like, as I told you half an hour ago. This is who he has been from all eternity. He didn't enter into a new chapter of his identity at the Incarnation. He just revealed who he's always been. There's no aspect of the triune God that is not revealed in who Christ is. He is exactly like the Father, exactly. The Incarnation means that the eternal triune relationship has now come to earth. I've stressed this because I'm convinced that our 21st century evangelicalism has missed this truth. Jesus did not come simply as the Father's representative. Uh, he didn't come as a smaller version of God. We have imagined and preached too small a Christ. And a smaller Christ means a smaller gospel. Since Christ came as fully God, then while he was walking the earth, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, casting out demons, at the same moment he was holding all of creation together. Colossians 1.17, right? You talked about that last week, Denny. By him, all things hold together. As we read of Jesus healing the sick and teaching the multitudes, we understand he was also orchestrating all the activity of the cosmos. Why is that important for us? Because it helps us to begin to lift up our eyes to heavenly realities of who he really is. It begins to set us free from what I think is a bondage of he, he came as the Father's representative. We begin to see who he really, really is. The incarnation is the eternal union of man and God. For all eternity, the Son of Man is one of us. He didn't go back. He didn't leave his divinity when he left the earth. He is always and forever a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. He's even bigger than Handel. <laughs> In becoming human, Jesus entered into our fallen existence. In the Incarnation, he brought together the triune life of God in all its purity, joy, righteousness, and fullness. And he brought it together with the human existence, with all its brokenness, fear, corruption, and disease. Jesus entered into our condition, but he was never tainted by it. That's why I always teach people, John 1, 5, run into the darkness. The light changes the darkness, not the other way around. Jesus was never tainted by it. Today, my wife was in places that she said were darker than we have ever been. 
and we've been to some places. And she can do that because she knows she's never tainted by it. The light overcomes the darkness. But it doesn't run around the darkness. Okay? Jesus entered into our condition. This is how he conquered. Not as a warrior king. Without the incarnation, God could look down on our condition with compassion. But in the incarnation, he joined us in our failure, our alienation, our darkness, but he never yielded to them. And there's the great difference. And that's why the victory's there. He fully entered into humanity, but refused to live his life as anything but the Son of God. This is why Paul calls Christ the last Adam. While the first Adam yielded to temptation in his desire to be like God, the last Adam was God who became man in order to defeat the very powers and temptations that had defeated the first Adam. Does that make sense to you? Baxter Kruger wrote this. Jesus stood in Adam's shoes, but he refused to be Adam. So in the mystery of the Incarnation, this perfect union of man and God lies an infinitely deep and beautiful truth, one that is worthy of a lifetime of meditation and adoration. This is the beauty of God revealed. This is the beauty. This is the beauty that reconciles all of creation. And that's all I got to say tonight about something that we could talk for a long time. Did this begin to tweak some thoughts? Do you see how central the incarnation is? (laughs) And let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, Son of God, No wonder Paul called this unsearchable, unsearchable riches. All I know to do tonight, Lord, is to say, would you, would you quicken thoughts to us? Would you, would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you begin to expand us with this incredible, incredible central truth? of who you are. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, that concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Don't forget to email any questions you may have to podcast at impactnations.com, and we'll be sure to discuss those in an upcoming question and answer episode. In the meantime, have a great week. God bless you.